Hi, it's Monday. Uh, I don't have anybody yet for the um, for the parsha um, or maybe the Torah, but I want to do another one from the new catalog here. It was sent to me online uh, the, of Gnazim again. That's G E N A Z Y M. Otherwise, you go to the wrong place. And uh, I'm roaming through here. It's like a happy hunting ground for somebody like me. I got the bucks to to to, to put down on these things, but these are very precious items, and I'm looking here, which ones catch my attention. I'm looking at the Safer Harmonic. That's the first edition of Safer Harmonic. Uh, that means it's uh, published in 1519 in Constantinople. If you know anything about the dates of publishing, it's pretty doggone early, uh, which is very interesting when you consider that one of the first things they ever published, ever, and uh, especially in uh, Turkey, uh, which became an important uh, printing press area, was Zafir Harmonic. So this is uh, being done, uh, speaking now of the uh, Gnosim catalog, which is going to be out soon. And the uh, auction is, uh, I guess, next Sunday, uh, September 10. So if you're interested, you go online, G-N-A-Z-Y-M, you'll see everything better than I can say. I'm just looking at all these goodies. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting. The Zafir Harmonic is something that caught my attention decades ago. But for some reason, I never bought the fancy edition from Yitzhak Raphael that was his doctoral dissertation or something like that. I'm sure it has good notes. Uh, but I have an old-fashioned one. When I was a kid, I, I was once at my uncle's in Minneapolis. He passed away many decades ago. And he had the good old Ertzi throw, which I now have. And, I mean, left to me, then my children. And um, I remember, for some reason, it sticks in my mind. I still remember the article on the Sefer Hamanhig. So, let me say a few words about this. This is a Rishon. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine. You don't have to. It's a Rishon. It's Avram ben Nosan Ayarchi, which means he's a Provencal from Provence, from Lunyel. Yarchi means from the moon. Moon is Lunya, and that's the town of Lunyel, which is near Marseille, you know, to, to, to make it easy for you to understand, you know, in that general area. Uh, so, this is a book by a Provence uh, uh, rabbi, but not the regular, typical Provence rabbi, if there is such a thing even. Uh, but rather one who uh, lived and had uh, amazing context in um, in Ashkenaz, which is not the same thing as Provence, and later in Sfarad. So we're talking about a Rishon who lived in the, uh, I think the years is something like 1155 to 1215, something like that. So that means he lived in the middle and late 1100s, early 1200s. That's the Mamish, the period of the Rishonim. And our hero, Abram Nasanayarchi, was a Talmud Chachem in Provence. Uh, before the Maimonidean controversies hit there, uh, I just did a uh, a YouTube thing two years ago, was it? During the corona. Maybe it's up on the audio by now also on the Maimonidean controversies. And uh, this is another, in the late life of the Rambam, and then after his death, it's all kind of fights over Hashkafic issues uh, in, in in the complicated legacy left by Maimonides. And the main players in this were, were the uh, big rabbis and Jewish intellectuals in Provence, which was, of course, uh, and Provence means Provence and Languedoc, which to make it easy for you, call it southern France. 
It's not exactly accurate, but it's close enough. Southern France. And uh, we today, most of the people listening to this, think of Judaism in a kind of uh, two-part religion. Is Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Which is, I mean, there certainly is Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And we have our commonalities and we have our differences. Shine. Some people that are a little more sophisticated will know that the Taimanim are not exactly Sephardim. The Italians are not exactly Ashkenazim. You know, they're, again, they're their own thing. Some of you have heard about the Romaniot. In other words, there's more than just Ashkenazim and Sephardim. By the time the Middle Ages ended, the two most powerful and dynamic sets of Mesoras were the Ashkenaz and Sephard. But even within those, Sephard was a big place called the Iberian Peninsula. And not all the places had the same customs and halachic practices. So just off the top of my head, now is coming to Kodeshel, we're in Kodeshel. You must remember, I'm sure many do, that Duran, who lived in Barcelona in the 1300s, says that in some places in Spain they do slichas from the beginning of the month, the way the Spartan do now. And in other places in Spain, they do slichas a week before, like we, like the Ashkenaz does. So even within Sephardim itself, there are different minhagim and different customs. Some of you will be familiar with the fact that a lot of your Moroccan Jews do not eat kidneys because of the Hashba the Rush in Toledo, which is a certain part of Spain. It, you can't just bunch them all together. And the same thing is true for Ashkenaz. Okay? So, if you go back a thousand years ago, there was not only the Jews living in the Iberian Peninsula, what we call Sfard, and in the area of Ashkenaz, which is northern France, not southern France, and to another, a certain degree, the Rhineland, which is next to northern France, that's what we call Ashkenaz. But in addition to that, there was the Italians, there was this, that, and the other. One of them was Provence, which was southern France. So they had their own minhagim, but on the other hand, they were very permeable and malleable. I just did a talk where a guy wrote a book a year ago, two years ago. Uh, oh, the name escapes me. It was a it was a professor. It was a good book on on the Provencal Jews. And oh, yeah, I am I'm sorry, I don't remember the name. Anyway, I gave a talk at one of the conferences there. The point is that the Jews in Provence are are living next door to the Ashkenaz. And therefore, a fair number of them received their Torah education not in Provence, or not only in Provence, but also, let's say, for example, in Ashkenaz. Just like today, a guy could be in Baltimore and then go to Yeshiva in Israel. Alternatively, a guy could be in Baltimore and go to a place called Lakewood that exists far away. Right? Or something like that. So... That's what happened in the Middle Ages. That's what happened to our hero, who turned it into a virtue. Goes out and, and made it into a classic safer, which, again, if it's published, I mean, they're offering here the original publication of this from Constantinople 1519. I mean, you're talking about one of the first Jewish books ever published, which leads you to the question, why do people consider that to be worthy of publication more than some others farm? Shows you how powerful the, the Hashpa was, even though today, I'll bet you most people have never even heard of Sefer Amonik, uh, which has to do with Menhagim, as you'll see in a second. So we're dealing with a guy, with, with someone who lived in the 1100s, born in the 1150s. So think about it, he's growing up in the 1160s, 1170s. And 
he learns in Provence, where he lives, at the yeshiva of the Goro of Provence, which was the Ravid, uh, who didn't live too far away. The Ravid was not simply a Goro in Provence, he was the Goro in Provence, and he could take on the whole world, five Amon. And he was a talk of Shabbat Kifim. You know that. So, I mean, not only against the uh, Rambam, but against others. Derive is derive it. But our hero, having learned by the Ravid, then went north to Lakewood. I mean, he went north to Ashkenaz, and he learned by the Re Balatisavis. You know, Omar Re, right? <laughs> Music of Don Pierre, who's a nephew, right? A nephew of, um, of the Renu Tom. So, all of a sudden, we're dealing with a very interesting person who is clearly, obviously, a Talmud Chacham, it goes without saying. And look who the Rebbeim are. He learned by the Ravid, and then he learned by the Ri, all of whom were contemporaries. And believe you me, the Balitos and the Ravid disagree on many issues, just the way the, the Rambam and the Ravid disagree on many issues. And so our hero was obviously exposed to two different uh, versions. Uh, that's a little too much, but two different uh, Mesorahs. Now, you can take that in one of two ways. To me, the Sefer Ramanic is always very interesting on the human level. You can come out of that also mished and, you know, say like this. You know, when I was in Baltimore, they said, this is mutter. When I'm in Lakewood, they say it's saucer. Or when I'm in Lakewood, they say you can't eat this. And Baltimore say you can't eat, you know, whatever it is. You can also mished Or alternatively, you become one of these guys, which she became, which is to say, mikam Yisrael. We have two separate sets of Hakim. It's very interesting. I know the ones in Baltimore are grounded in, you know, the Talmudic Chachamim of Baltimore. That's a long tradition. And the ones in Lakewood have that. And so, look how varied and wonderful it's like a uh, rainbow, you might say. Judaism is that it has, uh, even though, you know, has it said, Kulim Bali Asufis Echod, like the Gemara says. That, you know, we have one source, which is the Torah of the but the way it plays out, in halachic practice, may be the same and may be different. And mikam Yisrael. And uh, the truth of the matter is, listen closely, I'm about to say, I, I say many times, all halacha is really minhag. By which I mean that ever since the Sanhedrin went out of business, which is long ago, if you want to know what to do, and by the way, the Sanhedrin went out of business without leaving any records. I mean, that, that, that's the point, okay? It's not like we have, you know, the court records from long ago. Then we would have a clear set of halachic guidelines and practices. But it didn't. Nothing remains for them except the occasional quotations you find in the course of the discussions in the Talmud, which is just interesting. It's chaplop. It may be that Gemara, for whatever reason, in whatever place, in whatever mesecta, ends up talking about something that you and I call Rabbanan, or maybe the way they apply to Derisa, which may reflect what the Sanhedrin said. And by the way, one Sanhedrin is not exactly identical with what the other Sanhedrin said, you know, in a different generation, different time. It's a whole mishmash. It's a whole mess. Welcome to the Jewish religion. As they always say over and over again, as uh, what was his name? Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of an organized party. I'm a Democrat. So I'm not a member of organized religion. I'm Orthodox Jew. You see? And so when I say it's all minhug, in this, in this area, the custom developed to follow Shittas Rashi. In another place, the custom developed to follow Ches 
you know, Shittas uh, Rabbeinu Tam or Ritva or whoever. That's how Halacha hardened into whatever it was. They're using different understandings of the Gemara, different Shittas Roshanim, perhaps, if you want to call it, or thing, or other things like that. And it gelled, it hardened eventually into a certain specific, distinct type of practice. And that became the way things were done in those days. So as we all know, in some areas of um, Jewish law, it depends where you lived. Uh, Provence is kind of famous, at least in my mind, for its coolest, which is interesting. Uh, just off the top of my head, you know, uh, in Provence, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, you know, they held that you can do a mere lock and even a derisa. Uh, you know, so it's a, you know, Dubala Itter, you know, so uh, who, who's in Provence? So I'm just saying, you know, that's that's interesting. And they were from, but in other places, they wouldn't do that. That's just one thing off the top of my head. So we have this Tamishkite of Halach on the one hand and Minhag on the other, which the average person out there, the Hamonam, thinks are two distinct areas of uh, discourse. And they're not exactly distinct areas of discourse. They overlap in funny kind of ways. Our hero was actually very interested in everything I just said. And uh, he lived, in this, as I say before, in the second half of the 1100s. And he learned by the Riven, and then he also learned by the uh, uh, Ri, which means he was buddy-buddies, fellow students with others of the late Ba'ali Tosvos, because the late Ba'ali Tosvos are the Talmidim of the Ri. For example, the Rajbah, not the Rajbah, but the Rajbah, Shem, Shem, and Avram, and people like that. These are his buddies. In addition to that, he seems to have traveled around uh, Jewish Europe at that time, in the Torah sense. What I mean by that is, a guy would say, I'm going to Baltimore, then I'm going to Lakewood, then I'm going to Muncie, then I'm going to Cleveland, then I'm going to Chicago, whatever, you know what I mean? No, there's all the Torah-type places. So that's what he did. And eventually, he left that whole region and moved to Spain, which didn't exist, to uh, Iberia, to Toledo, uh, when he was in his 40s. And uh, Toledo at that time was uh, Big Malcolm Torah. The uh, Yad was there. And our hero was Chashub enough to become a die-in there, even though he was not a local. So obviously he must have known how to learn. Uh, I mean, you know, seriously. And if I remember correctly, one of the Richie Ridges in Toledo dedicated a new synagogue. And in honor of the occasion... Uh, in order to know that they want to get them in Hagim right, so our hero undertook to write a book explaining all the Minhagim. Now I don't say he explained every minute, but he, that was the that was the purpose, okay? And he called it Sefer Hamanhig, get it, Minhag Manhig, and um, it became the first of a certain genre of rabbinical literature, which is uh, had a very interesting and funny history. Since then, he wrote this around 1200 or so in, in that period. So now it's 800 years later. And um, it's actually a little more, 900 years later. And the uh, literature of Minhagen books has, you know, uh, 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 rises and ebbs, you know, fl- ebbs and flows. So, for example, in the uh, four, 13, 14, especially 1400s, the Minhagen book among the Ashkenazim was like a, a mania, you know, 
between the Trimus Adesh and the Leke Yosher and the Maril, and what's the Tashbits from the uh, Mam Rottenberg and I don't know, you know, Isaac Turnell, as I said the other day, and Save Him and Hagim this and Save Him and Hagim that. I mean, you know, it was it was it was a wild and crazy time of Minhagim books. Uh, and in our day today, I see, you know, that they there's a whole genre of that kind of stuff where people will write what did the Hazanish do and what did the other do. There's a I have a, a, a two volumes in my house just off the top of my head. You know, sometimes you look in the Piske Chuvas. I remember, like for the for for the uh, uh, Passover Seder. So, you know, what do you use? Wine or grape juice, this, that, and the other. And, you know, there's arguments this way and that way. And I remember Piskei Chu was quotes from, uh, was it some safer one, B'nai Brock, whatever, I forget what it is. He said, well, the Chazanish used grape juice, and so does the stipler. It's in the Piskei Chu. So you say like this, okay, you know, that kind of ends the discussion. <laughs> you see, because when you have a minute like that from a Godol, or a Vilna Gon type thing or something like that, then you say, okay. You see, here it is called Simchas Hamoadim that I'm holding. And it's all chit chat from the Yeshiva world. I should actually open it now that Rosh Hashanah is here. And, uh, you know, w- w- what did different Gedolim, recent recent Gedolim, you know, what did they do on Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur and Sukkot and, you know, Hanukkah? And, you know, and you'll see the Rebel Yashif says this, and the Stipler said, if you do it that way, not Yodzei, and all this kind of funny business. And inquiring minds are interested in now because they want to know but what Lamaisa did people do? Because at the end of the day, halacha is one thing when you read it in a book, and it's something else when you see it Lamaisa. And believe me, I know from a lot of BTs, you know, that they read books and what to do on Friday night and Shabbos, but only when they come to somebody's house and they saw how they did it Lamaisa, they say, Oh, that's what you mean. Okay. All right. So, you know, that's how it works. <laughs> right? So ain't it dumb so to speak. And the Sefer Amani, uh, you know, uh, undertook to uh, share for the readers in Spain, in Toledo, the, the guy starting this new fancy synagogue, and they want to get their minhagim right and ch- pick and choose among the best minhagim, uh, and get rid of bad minhagim. So this already raises the question, you know, uh, what's a good minig, what's a bad minig? Now, the general history in in rabbinic literature is, if the rabbi likes the minig, he says, oh, minig, I was saying to be a denu. If the rabbi dislikes the minig, he says, oh, minig is oisius gehenna, you know, like a bad yosef. So in Hagim, you know, they're, they're, they're like the wild card, you understand? Uh, and yet, we all know, especially in Ashkenaz, that uh, the focus on Hagim, the minig was in Mavata Uh And so, the Sefer Amanig is not an Ashkenaz guy, not a Sephardi guy, He's in the middle, but he hung around and spent a lot of time in various parts of Ashkenaz. He says so. He said I was in Alemania, in the in the Rhineland, in northern France, obviously in Provence. He was even in England, which was in his time, the late late eleven hundreds. That would be the time of uh, Richard Lionheart and King John, and uh, let's when 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 English Jewry. I'm speaking in Jewish terms. When English Jewry was a colony of French Jewry, that was of, of Tosafistic. Uh, jewelry. That's uh, if I ever go to England, we'll talk about that. But I'm talking about at that time, you know, I'm talking about that not now, obviously. And uh, so he has a lot of minhagim. Now, the thing with him is he's a serious Talmud Chacham, so he wants to know which minig is baloney, which minig is good. Now, the truth of the matter is, when he goes to different places, uh, 
just off the top of my head, and I think the historians usually quote the Sefer Harmonic in this context because the historians are not from. He says, in Spain, they dominate uh, and in Ashkenaz they daven rosh. Now uh, it may mean that they didn't wear a yarmulke even, and there is grounds for saying that. On the other hand, it may not be true. It may mean that they just don't wear the talus over the head. Uh, but in general, he's usually quoted in connection with the yarmulkes because, as you know and I know, the Gemara never nowhere says you have to wear a yarmulke, and yet here's a guy writing in the 1200s and around the year 1200. Uh, where is it? And it's proper, that's what he means, you're talking, it's proper to walk around So he says, I'm, in France, they don't walk around the street with, with yarmulkes. Uh, they walk bareheaded before the Lord. And not to Rabbonin, but, you know, the regular people. And in Spain, everybody, apparently, what he's saying, he was in Toledo, you know, and he says they all wear, they, they all wear Kisi Roche of some kind or another. That's an example of one of a million that you find in this uh, wonderful Sefer. And the historians usually rifle the book to collect, um, you know, descriptions of different Hagim. And what he does is, he doesn't simply tell you what they do, but he tries to figure out where they come from and see if there's a Makar for it. Or is it baloney? I remember he said when he came to uh, Toledo, he was he himself was mevatel, several dumb minhugs connected with bris mila. I don't remember what it is. And listen, in the Jewish tradition, sometimes superstitions do creep into there, and sometimes we pick up stuff from the guy. Mike, to tell you that's that's just the way it goes. And every once in a while, some rabbi will come along and say, "This is this you should get rid of, and this one you should keep." And he's a classic example of that because he says. Uh, he's a Mlaket Minhage Sfarad, Sarfas, Provence, uh, Champagne, Campania, Champagne, Burgundy, Alemania, that's Germany, Eayam, uh, that's England, you know, he's all over the place, okay? And, uh, just, and, and he picks up there, it's, in other words, it's a very interesting book for a historian. Uh, as I told you, you know, he doesn't wear, in, in Spain, you don't, you, you, you don't, Dom Begili Roche. In in France, Minak Sarfas, Shamavarch Birchas Amosim Masate Bixuso, Anus and Kobarosho. But we take today for standard Yeshiva should practice. You were hat in a jacket when you mentioned he's at some Minak Sarfas. Minak Sarfas, Rabbani Sarfas, Chasideho, Lenanea Bashast Filo, Amasai, the Shuckle during Shemanesri. You know, it's always been a fight, correct? Um, you know, according to the standard Talmudic law, you stand still. My father, Osham, didn't shock He stood still like a statue. That was considered a Mesamalchus, where he grew up. You know what I'm saying? You stand still. Rabbi Ruderman and all that, they all stood still. On the other hand, the other men hug him, as he says, Rabbonic Sarfas, and you shuckle. Minik Shinogu Losis Mos Purm Yuma Purm Lanis, Robert Sesmikes, and he talks about, these are all famous quotes of all the historians. You give out money when you you know to poor people when you leave shul on Purim. Ubam hanachrios and all the little kids come with their nannies. You see, there never was a Jewish family that was so poor didn't have some sheikhs working for them. It's funny I need to say it, you know, uh, because the peasantry were beyond poor, and yeah, and and therefore you give them. So you not only give. 
let's say, a silver dollar to the little kid, but you also give one to the nanny who's not Jewish. On Purim. Now, you know, the Shulchan Aruch talks about this. Um, you know, for, what do you call it? For uh, uh, Shalom, Darke Shalom, right? And, <laughs> but the Sefer Ammonik says, Oi, Kesev is of your base Elohim, Vizahov, also Labal. He says, like, it's like supporting the Baal or something like that. Anyway, it's all full of these uh, very interesting and colorful kinds of events. In the beginning, he gives a lot of Musr, you know, and I uh, remember he talks about, you know, what does the Gemara say? There are not a 613 mitzvahs, there's actually one mitzvah. Remember that? In the Marcus, what's the one mitzvah? Tzadik Munoso Yechil. Well, if he's starting the book like that, you know where he's going. <laughs> okay? You know where he's going. And uh, he tries to roam through the whole uh, literature, especially the Midrashim and Pirker of Lezer and things like that. I think that's probably where the tour got all the Elul stuff. I don't have it in front of me right now. I'm just talking in my office. Uh, and I'll bet you if I had that uh, critical edition from Yitzhak Raphael, uh, like I said, it was his dissertation. They probably have all the notes. I believe all the stuff about Elul, which the tour quotes, and everybody quotes from the tour, is, and and you and I know that um, the source of his Pirker of Lezer about Moshe Rabbeinu going up, you know, Rosh Chodesh El and all the rest of it, um, which I spoke about the other day in the Elul podcast, uh, I think it starts from Sefer Amonhig. Okay? Because it is a minhug. You understand? Blowing the shofar and all the rest of it is a minhug. And when it comes to the tekiya shofar, it's a lot of minhugim, as you know. And once again, which ones are real, which are not real? Again, off the top of my head, he reports, I remember this, he's the one who says that was a totally widespread in Provence to uh, stop the morning on Tisha B'Av by Mincha time. In other words, not only can you sit on chairs to use our language today, you know, after chatzos, you can sit on chairs. But uh, in general, you set up the house and, and you prepare the table and the rest of it because of the tradition that the Mashiach is coming on Tisha B'Av. All the later post-game, especially I remember what comes to mind, the Chayyotim, they say it's a dummy minhag and this, and that, and the other. It could be. You know, I'm not denying that. But it's an old minhag. If it's in the Sefer Amanig, in other words, then it was old minhag already in the year 1200 long before the Chayyotim ever came along. So, so much of what we do is coming from this world. I mean, here we are in the month of El and and uh, Tishrei. You know that there are all these customs of fasting, uh, which are minhagim. But they were deeply rooted in the folk spirit of Kal Yisrael. And so you know, there's a minute to fast 40 days, and there's even a minute to fast 80 days, you know, starting from, uh, you know, the beginning of three weeks. I'm serious. You know, obviously, like Ramadan, you, you eat at night. Uh, and you have to deduct Shabbos, all the rest of it. These are old customs. Uh, the whole business of Sphira. These are customs. They're not, you know, you know, they're not in the Gemara. Uh, and so we have the interplay between a popular practice on the one hand and Talmudic law on the other. And it's not simply that they're, you know, uh, neatly divided. By the time you come to the law codes in Judaism, especially the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch, which of course became the codes, they were profoundly influenced 
by the Sefer Hamanig and the world of Minhagim, Ad Kedekach, that plenty of dinim in the Shulchan Aruch, I'm talking about the Mechamer, especially the Ramah, come from the world of Minhagim, as everybody knows. And they're the ones who made a lot of these Minhagim in the law codes, even though, strictly speaking, you could argue, you say, well, if it's not in the Talmud, then it's not binding as a, as a law. If you want to tell me that you hold it's a good thing to do, fine. If you tell me you must do it, uh, like I just said before, if you want to tell me it's a commendable thing to fast for 40 days in the month of El, I say, sure, okay, but you, you're not telling somebody I have to do it, right? It's, it's, it's dealer's choice. But if you're telling me that you have to do it, then the question is, where is it in the law code? The Sefer Amadi, in his time already, was aware of the tremendous power of the Minhagim, and he speaks of all of them respectfully, except for those individual Minhagim that he holds are not well-grounded. Uh, there are plenty that are grounded in Midrashic literature, as I think we all know. Uh, and a lot of it you find in the tour. And therefore, it makes its way past the tour into later literature. You know, that famous message that, you, how's it go? With the, you know, the, the king is coming and uh, he forgives one-third of the sins at this point, a second third of sins at that point, and the last third of sins when he gets to the town. That's by, that's by us in beginning of El, middle of El, and Rosh Hashanah, and all those sorts of things. Uh, the source was actually in Sefer Amanahig. That's why, even though the Sefer Amanahig has been, um, what's the right, surpassed, that is to say, he lived around the year 1200. Uh, in the 1300s, 1400s, especially the Ashkenazim produced a whole bumper crop of these kind of books, specifically on Ashkenazi customs, you know, for shul practice and things like that. Uh, a, a recent one would be the Mata Ephraim, I spoke about last week, has plenty of Minhagim. Uh, but all those people kind of looked to the Sefer Hamanig as the inventor of the genre. And as long as the Jewish religion remains a living organism as opposed to a museum piece, which is no longer there, uh, Minhagen will will constantly change and will constantly uh, percolate. Because that's a sign of a living organism. If you say you do everything exactly the way the Ovos did it, I mean literally exactly, uh, it, it, it won't survive. Now this is so obvious that it's right under our nose and it sounds outrageous. Because the average from person says, no, I do the same, I'm not reform, I'm not conservative, I do the same thing we all, we always did. Not really. I mean, some things, of course, you do, obviously. But there are a lot of changes in there. Because, you know, your ancestors didn't live in a t- time with cars. And, frankly, they didn't have art scroll. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They didn't have, uh, uh, what is it called? The Masifta and Steinzels and all the rest of it. And they didn't have exposure to all kinds of different Muslims, and there wasn't the state of Israel, and there's a hundred other things that, that are not there. And uh, and boys don't sleep on the floor in, in yeshivas, as they used to do once upon a time. So, changes are always there. The question is, you know, how how big and radical the changes are or not. Uh, I think Sefer Manik is the one who's, who, who's the first one who talks about uh, Bamem and Likin also. Uh, a lot of them. So it's actually a fascinating uh, book. The as I said before, it was held in very high regard, which can be reflected by the fact that uh, has an early publication.
Um, when you think of all the Rishonim and others and Gemaras even, uh, I mean, the Talmud itself was published later than the Sefer Hamani. So what does that tell you? I'll tell you what it tells you. If I was a rabbi in the 1500s and I had a community and I have to deal with different types of people in the community, let's say I was Sephardi. Let's just pretend I was Sephardi. And it's in the 1500s. And I'm and we're trying to make a Kehillah get together. And I get 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, whatever, we're going to become a Kehillah and make a show. We're going to try. But this guy says you have to start Slichas this way. And that guy says you have to do Slichas that way. This one says that this is the tune to use. And anything else like that is Kefira. And the other guy says, no, my tune is the right tune to use. So what is the rabbi supposed to do? The first thing he wants to do, if he's intelligent, is be armed with knowledge. Okay? How's he going to get knowledge of, of all the various minhagim? A classic source would be to say from money. You get what I'm saying? That was its, in my opinion, that was its usefulness. You see? It's very interesting. That's where that's where it came in, you know, um, <laughs> uh, as as handed. It's a little bit like the tour in the sense that it gives you a, an encyclopedia of different opinions, different hugging out there, and it lets me, as the Rav, make intelligent choice, uh, not an unintelligent choice, between competing customs and and uh, pressures. Uh, that's why I think that it was there. But anyway, it's a classic. It wasn't reprinted very often, because it, uh, so if you get the 15, 19 edition, now what's it going? It's going for 15K. Woo! Uh, <laughs> uh, hats off to the players. The the uh, but this is I I, I think it's it's uh, a less well known but very very interesting and important uh, safer and uh, you'll see it again in the new Gnosim catalog which is I'm looking at it online so you just do Gnosim dot com you know G N A Z Y M and again the the uh, the what do you call it, the auction is September 10 in the afternoon if you're interested if you can afford to be interested, look it up online. With that, I wish you all a good day.